I would pose the question to you. What's Chronicles about and how is it any different than Kings and Samuel? Because there's a lot of repetition. What did you say? There's a lot of overlap. A lot of overlap, yes. In the storyline. Mm-hmm. But as you said last week, and it reminded me of what I had Yes, it tells even the return from exile. It tells the return from exile. Yes, it uh, it deals with... It, you said something that's crucial to this book. It's looking back. The authors of Kings and Samuel were much closer to the events themselves, and the exile and the return had not yet happened at the point of uh, Kings being written. Now, the exile had just started 37 years earlier, um, around the time that Kings was written, but now they have returned to the land, and this is somebody looking back and reflecting on the whole history and putting together a narrative for the people based on historical facts. Any other uh, insight right now into what Chronicles is, what it's about, and why it's there when we already have Samuel and Kings? It says right here. <laughs> Where is right here? This is oh, the introduction. Um, Good. Introduction. Mm-hmm. Um, but it says, which is, I find it interesting, um, that Chronicles has the best point of view from the priest's point mm-hmm. of view. Yes. There's a great emphasis on the temple and the priestly matters and the Levitical line. Mm-hmm. Well, let's jump right in because that actually is the start here. Chronicles is a historical and theological perspective on the covenant life of Israel. Now, covenant life may remind you of that very first diagram that we looked at as we were introducing the Old Testament. And it's that diagram that puts um, the law, the prophets, and the writings as the order of the Old Testament rather than uh, how, how we have it with the um, Pentateuch and then the historical writings and then the um, wisdom literature and then the prophets. So the order is different in the Jewish Bible. In fact, this was the last book in the Bible, the Old Testament. Chronicles was the summary, the recap from a historical and a theological perspective, detailing this is what covenant life in Israel looks like. The chronicler, which is what we'll call the author slash compiler, writes with special attention to historical accuracy and to theology with the aim of endorsing for his Jewish audience faithfulness of heart, head, and hands. And here's um, a helpful quote. In order to direct his audience to reconsider what they believed about the people of God, about the king and the temple, there's the priestly piece, and about God's blessings and curses. Yes. And according to the Hebrew order, yes, definitely the last historical book. Uh, it's the latest historical perspective on the Old Testament life, but some of the other prophetical works were written later. So um, Ezra and Nehemiah is kind of in that same time frame, but Malachi um, and Esther, I believe, were that time or slightly later. Um, but yes, this would have been at the end of the... A Hebrew Old Testament. 
And you have to remember, this is written at a time when Israel had gone out into, first of all, northern kingdom to Assyria, southern kingdom into to Babylon. They had been scattered, and now they're regathering in the land. And for good reason, they had great expectations that as they returned to the land, there's going to be an outpouring of God's blessings. Moses promised that, and the prophets had promised that, that when the people returned from exile, there would be a time of unparalleled blessings for Israel. Moses and the prophets had promised that there's going to be uh, unparalleled blessings for the nation of Israel. And so they come back with these great expectations. Here we are, the people of God back in the land. It's going to be glorious and it's not. So there's this disappointment that pervades um, the, under, the, the view of what's going on in, um, in other writings and the prophets. It's, it's written and in Ezra and Nehemiah. The people are just disappointed. Those who had came, seen King Solomon's temple were sorely disappointed with how it uh, looks now with the rebuilding of the temple. And uh, it, it shows that there must be something. And that's our point two under the introduction here. The purpose was to encourage the disappointed people who have returned from exile they were expecting that the Messiah was going to free the nation and reestablish temple worship with God's presence filling it again. That never happened. The, God's presence never filled the temple again. And all, all what this does is it, it, um, it shows that this return is not the ultimate fulfillment of the promises of God to Israel. It anticipates and it illustrates that the promise is yet to come. The fulfillment of this is still yet to come. And of course, that comes in the ultimate messianic king and the ultimate priest, Jesus. So it is once again, God setting the stage to show us the glory of what Christ did. Uh, I think it's important. Let's go ahead and just open to the very first word in the book of First Chronicles. Like Samuel and Kings, these were one book, but because of scroll length, they had to be divided into two. So First Chronicles 1, what's the first word? Adam. That's a different perspective than, than Samuel and Kings. This is a theological perspective looking at who are we as a people. We, are, we started in Adam. And so the author, the chronicler, is reminding the people of Israel, this is who you are all the way in the promises, back to the promises of Adam, all the way to the very last verse in Second uh, Chronicles, or the, the last section in Second in Chronicles, talks about the, um, the promise of return, that the people would be able to return under Cyrus's decree. They would be able to come back to the promised land. So it's the story of Adam to the return from exile with great expectations, and yet those expectations must be extended a little bit farther into the future. Okay, here's a few specific distinctions from Samuel and Kings. Chronicles is concerned not to explain how the people ended up in exile, but to remind them who they are to God now that they are back in the promised land. Unlike Kings, the northern kingdom is not of concern to the chronicler. The David story largely ignores David's failures. Kind of glosses over. It doesn't tell the story of Saul chasing him down. It doesn't tell the story of Bathsheba. And it's not because the chronicler is trying to avoid that or cover it up. He knows you can go and find this in, in Samuel and in Kings, but instead he's piecing together this theology of what it means that the, the Davidic covenant is still a promise to be fulfilled. And it's a special focus on the temple and on the priesthood, as Deanna pointed out. 
Chronicles also starts with Adam. We looked at that. Continues through all of redemptive history and its genealogies up to Cyrus and the last descendant of David, uh, much like Matthew does to set the stage for Christ. So this is really setting the stage for Jesus of Nazareth before they knew that his name was going to be Jesus of Nazareth. And it includes mention of the return from exile, even though it's a brief mention. I was going to try to make some point, but I forgot what it was. So if there are no questions or comments, we'll keep trucking. All right. We don't know who wrote um, Chronicles, but we know a number of things about the author. First of all, he was among the leaders of Israel. And we know that because he had access to Samuel and Kings and non-canonical prophetic books, meaning books that aren't in the Bible that uh, were available to the religious leaders in those days and the royal annals of Israel and Judah. So he had access to the documents that the kings had had uh, stored in their reserves. Uh, He was also probably from the tribe of Levi, perhaps from the high priest uh, Zadok's family. And that's evidenced by his interest in specific, uh, specifically in sacrifices and priesthood and the temple. And the date of Chronicles is narrowed by the decree of Cyrus at the very end, which happened in 538 BC. It was likely composed either near the days of Zerubbabel, who was rebuilding the temple in Israel after the return, or soon after the ministries of Ezra and Nehemiah, who uh, ended up being leaders over the return, the the, those who returned from exile uh, shortly after his rebel. So sometime in that 515 to 390 BC window. That's about a 125 year window of where, when it could have been written. Uh, in, in my knowledge of what I've heard elsewhere, the latest book that was written was about 430. So my guess would be that this was probably a little bit earlier than 390, probably uh, mid 400s BC. Okay, let's look at the just the overview here. First of all, look at First Chronicles chapter one. I started reading through Chronicles on the airplane, and I was trying to just kind of get a sense of it. And I started skimming through the first chapter after chapter after chapter, and I couldn't get to the end of the genealogies. Look, I mean, look at it. Chapter one is genealogy uh, from Adam to Abraham. Again, this is setting the theological stage. Abraham to Jacob. Chapter two, the genealogy of David. Chapter 3, the descendants of David, and then 4, the descendants of Judah, in particular, the descendants of Simeon in chapter 4, and then of Reuben and Gad in chapter 5, half-tribe of Manasseh. Chapter 6 is an emphasis on Levi. See how much space Judah has gotten and how much space Levi gets here in chapter 6. And then you have Issachar in chapter 7, Benjamin, Naphtali, Manasseh, Ephraim, Asher. And then chapter 8, genealogy of Saul, and then a genealogy of the returned exiles in chapter 9. Then finally with the repeated uh, genealogy of Saul in chapter 9, verse 35, begins a new section uh, that talks about uh, what it looks, what the ideal kingdom looks like. I think chapter 9 is more important than uh, most of the, the places I was looking as I was studying this. To these people, it would have been hugely important to see the genealogy starting with Adam through Abraham, through David, the line of Judah, and then to see their grandpa's name in there. In chapter 9. This is really important for those people to remember who they are to God and the identity of God's people. And so this question of who are we 
is, is, uh, is the pervasive question in these first nine chapters. And, and you can look through them and just kind of gloss through. And, and, and of course, to you and to me, these names don't mean as much as they would have meant to those people or to people today who know more about uh, the names in particular. But these names that have been listed retell and remind the people of the stories of God's faithfulness to Israel. And then at the end, remember, this is also for These are your people. This is your family. Uh, and, they'll, and they would recognize those names there in chapter 9. The definition of the people of God is important here because there are times when the chronicler will take passages from Samuel or Kings and, and re, like reuse those passages, but change the name Israel to all Israel. So that phrase, all Israel, becomes really important to, uh, to the chronicler. It says here, uh, one of the chronicler's favorite expressions was all Israel and other closely related phrases. He copied uh, it from Samuel and Kings uh, in 1 Chronicles 18 and 19 and 2 Chronicles 7 and 10 and 18. And he modified Samuel and Kings to read all Israel in his version in 1 Chronicles 11 and 14 and 15 and 2 Chronicles 10. And he included the expression 19 times in material that was unique to himself. And I won't detail all 19 verses or chapters for you. But the point here is the chronicler was interested in that term, all Israel. And it's, uh, the point is he's trying to express that all Israel is more than just those who have come back. All Israel is defined by these genealogies, those who are descended from all these people, even those who remain in, uh, scattered abroad. Because there are still those who are faithful to God who did not end up coming back to the land. And they too are a part of Israel. It was thought that the restoration of the kingdom was, was incomplete unless Israelites returned to the promised land in large numbers. And so that's why uh, the chronicler was reminding the people who had returned of the extent of all Israel. And this only um, makes sense when we read it in light of these uh, other identity features that the chronicler looked at. And one of them has to do with northern Israel, because you notice northern Israel is pretty well just absent from this whole story. So you'd think he's kind of kicking them out, when in reality what he's doing is is kind of um, folding them into his narrative of the southern kingdom. In fact, turn to Second Chronicles 30. This is not uh, a part of... Samuel and Kings, and it's an interesting distinction because in 2 Chronicles 30, what Hezekiah does, he sends a letter to all Israel and Judah. He wrote letters also to Ephraim and Manasseh that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to keep the Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel. And uh, he continues down uh, from Dan to Beersheba in verse 5 that the people should come and keep the Passover of the Lord. And so uh, Hezekiah is, is used here, um, is explained here as being the reunifier of the north and the south. And so, the, so then the blessings um, that, that belong to Israel belong to all of them together here. And so it, it seems that as uh, the south was exiled into Babylon, so all of Israel went with Judah into exile in Babylon. So really the chronicler is trying to maintain this unity between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom um, to show that it was God's plan to include the northern tribes in Israel's restoration after exile. So even those who had gone into Assyria from the north were a part of this plan. 
because there had been question about whether or not the northern tribes were actually a part of the line of David and the promises of David. And the chronicler says, yes, all those who will come in faith to God are a part of this, especially those of the northern and southern kingdoms. So the, the genealogy in chapters 1 through 9, first chronicles, um, that genealogy includes those tribes from the north. Is that a statement? That's what I'm asking. Oh, it's a question. I, I let let me let me see. Um, yes, absolutely. Reuben, Gad, Simeon, Manasseh, chapters four and five. Yep. So they're there in the. But is this genealogy? Pre-exilic? Is it? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Okay. Mm-hmm. So this is prior, also prior to the divided kingdom, right? Uh, yes, at least part of it is. I Let me see. I don't know how far down into the divided kingdom, if into the divided kingdom, these, these go. Yeah, I, w- I, I don't know, and I, I can't just look at it. Yeah, that would that would be fascinating to know. What I'm wondering is if faithful, as you were used the phrase faithful Jews, and in my mind, I'm thinking, well, if you're a faithful Jew in Old Testament times, that means that you're making regular trips to the temple mm-hmm. to sacrifice mm-hmm. and to celebrate festivals. Mm-hmm. So if you're from the northern tribes and they've been exiled, mm-hmm. did you come to the south mm-hmm. before they exiled or? Sure. Yeah, and and I think I would say what the scribe said to Jesus. What's greater than all these sacrifices is to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor. And so uh, to say a faithful Jew, when I use that phrase, I think of one whose heart loves the Lord and loves his neighbor as himself. So not necessarily that he's able to fulfill. Right, especially especially because the temple had been, in many senses, its use was was over, especially with its destruction, with the you know the the armies coming in, uh, which I think s- simply makes the Jewish people anticipate there's got to be more than just the sacrifices. They've got to be pointing us to something, and indeed they do. So those who who are able to see God's faithfulness through the sacrifices, to anticipate God's provision to come in a sacrifice, those are the faithful ones. Those are the ones who, like Abraham, were justified not by their sacrifices, not by their works, but by their faith. That's how I would um, define the faithful, the faithful Jews in the northern, southern kingdom, whether they are abroad or back in the land. So that's the, the genealogies get to, and then you see for a while in chapter First uh, Chronicles ten through Second Chronicles nine, a long section telling about kingdom ideals, and this is kind of the. Um, I don't like to use the word whitewash, but I'm going to go ahead and use it. It's like the whitewashed retelling of the United Kingdom. Here's what it looked like with Saul and David and Solomon in control. It's an idealistic depiction of what kingship ought to be. It's not unrealistic, but it's painting the, the, the picture of what a, a kingdom should look like with the messianic reign anticipated in the goodness of the kings. And with the temple in active use as God's presence is among his people. And what it's doing is showing the Israelites, this is still what we 
what is, this is still the core of who we are as a people. There's still this, this Davidic, this person from the Davidic line, an heir of, of Judah who uh, is going to reign in this, this picture. We can like, look back to the good old days. They're coming back is kind of what the chronicler is saying. And so he looks back at the good old days, looks at God's blessing and looks at the devotion to the temple and say, this, says this is going to come back. Bless you. But it's not going to come back specifically as you anticipate it with this military victory, with a specific uh, large land uh, barrier, or um, not barrier, boundary. Uh, it's going to come through something different. And then there, it tells the story of the divided kingdom in Second Chronicles 10 through 28, and then it get, moves into the reunited kingdom where there are blessings and anticipation. So the divided kingdom does not paint um, the kingdom in such a, a good light because it's a divided kingdom, and show it, so it, it shows these are the consequences if you disobey. And then there's the, the reunited kingdom that comes through Hezekiah's actions, to reunite the north and the south. He cleanses the temple. He, re, as we said, reunifies. Uh, and that tells the story up through the decree of Cyrus, including the return from exile. Theologically, here are a few points that I think are helpful to know about this outline. When you look at the United Kingdom, I want to read you a, a quick snippet here. Well, let me, um, let me back up. You see the four main sections of the book, genealogies, united kingdom, divided kingdom, reunited kingdom. We just overview those. Let me go back through and give you kind of the theological import here of each of these sections, according to Richard Pratt's chapter here in the Miles Van Pelt um, book. Here's what the genealogies tell us. It says it would be possible to infer that the genealogies focus on two tribes, Judah and Levi. This focal point in the post-exilic community stemmed from a concern for kingship and temple. That is, the search for a true king and a true priest to lead and intercede for God's people in the restoration period. Of course, this search does not cease until we come to the genealogies of Matthew, when we discover that Jesus is both the king and the priest anticipated by these lists. So it's, it's a beautiful uh, expectation for Christ to come as you look at Jesus uh, being the 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 king and the priest, and of course the prophet as well. Uh, some of you may know this from early on, but we considered calling this church plant Christ the King. I think it's a beautiful name. It has a great ring to it, but I could not bring myself to emphasize his kingship over his priesthood and his prophethood. Um, and so uh, we just decided to make it about Christ, Christ alone as prophet, priest, and king. So uh, that was one of the things that was going on in my head. That's a side point. That's not relevant. The United Kingdom. Here's what's going on with the United Kingdom as we look at all these stories of Saul and David and Solomon, in, David and Solomon in particular. It says, these chapters deal primarily with the reigns of David and Solomon and explain how they received God's blessings as they unified the nation and devoted themselves to the temple. The chronicler omitted most of the well-known failures of these kings that were recorded in Samuel and Kings because he sought to persuade his audience to seek God's blessings in their day by following the positive features of the reigns of David and Solomon. So he really is urging them to live in that covenant faithfulness like David and Solomon did and to anticipate God's blessing. 
part three, the divided kingdom. Rather than alternating between the northern and southern kingdoms like uh, the book of Kings did, this section of Chronicles concentrates on events in Judah from the days of Rehoboam to Ahaz. In so doing, the chronicler led his audience to consider how the blessings and curses of God depended both on the rule of David's house and on the observance of the temple and its services. He rehearsed different scenarios of blessings and curses so that his audience could evaluate similar patterns in their own day. And then lastly, as we look at the reunited kingdom, here's the, um, the theological import. It says, This portion of Chronicles extends from Hezekiah to the decree of Cyrus. The most remarkable feature of this division is how the chronicler represented Hezekiah as one who reunited the northern and southern kingdoms under the house of David and an observance of the temple and its services. From this perspective, the successes and failures of Judah's kings in this section affected all the tribes of Israel. In this view, all the tribes of Israel symbolically endured exile to Babylon, but the edict of Cyrus called all the tribes to return to the land of promise under the leadership of David's house and in devotion to the temple and its services. So then the promise to all Israel continued through that line of Judah. And so as Hezekiah then reunites uh, the nation under the, the line of David, it reminds them the promise is still through the line of David. And it is indeed through that line that the fulfillment of the promise ultimately came in Jesus. Thoughts, questions right now? I don't think I ever realized that God never occupied the temple after this event. Yeah. Until this We're never told that his glory entered the temple again. They rebuilt it. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it, it the, the building itself, the those who had seen Solomon's temple looked at it and were almost sick to their stomach. They were so saddened by it because it, it what well, didn't even compare to the glory of the first temple. Which I believe leads us to anticipate God's presence filling his people at Pentecost. Of course with Christ coming and then his his spirit being poured out again into his church. That's right. That's can right. Imagine. Yeah. But can you imagine even, yeah. Can you imagine being Abraham who didn't hear from God for 20 years at a time with seeing even less than these people did. And, and it was his faith in God, which is supernatural. I mean, you can't give Abraham credit for, you know, believing in whatever he believed in. He, this was the true living God working in his heart and showing him to trust him. Just like for you and me, we can't give ourselves credit for trusting God when when we feel like we don't see the whole picture. And we are waiting. It's been 2,000 years. But it's his supernatural indwelling of the Spirit in us that keeps us steadfast and waiting for him to come in his full reign, which we still anticipate. I'll just really quickly gloss over these uh, other themes that you can find. The kingdom of God, covenant, divine retribution, providence, sin, the human heart. All those things are present. Um, There's a famous verse in here. You know this verse. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. You've probably heard that used uh, in application to America. Unfortunately, This is not depicting America. Uh, Well, fortunately or unfortunately, I'll I'll go ahead and say fortunately, 
uh, because God's plan is far better than ours. We want it to describe America, but this, this is true still today. But it's true for those who God calls my people, who are called by my name. And who are they? They are the church of Jesus Christ. If the church of Jesus Christ, who is called by my name, humbles themselves and they pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Um, and here's a, a quick summary from Matt Bradley on, on what this means. This lesson still applies both at the level of redemptive history and for the church in this age. It is only the obedience of Christ, which is ours by grace through faith, that brings God's eternal blessings. The only way we're going to receive forgiveness of sins and healing of the land and the only way that God is going to hear from heaven is because of Christ. And second, the church and Christians must also always be seeking obedience to God or we risk discipline. It does not risk our eternal standing because if we truly have faith in Christ, then even our disobedience cannot draw us away from him. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ if we're truly in him. But we see that there are still blessings and curses for obedience and disobedience, even under this um, new covenant. Any comments before we look here specifically at Christ in Chronicles? This is similar to Samuel and Kings, uh, but it gives some special attention to the kingship of David and Solomon that was perfected in the person of Christ. So you can go back through and look at the United Kingdom, 1 Chronicles 10 through 2 Chronicles 9, and see all these good things that these kings did, but realize, yet still there is a king coming who is better, who has perfected the kingship. And this kingship of Jesus, this is, this is going to sound heretical when I say this, the kingship of Jesus has not brought all the blessings yet. His first kingship. Because he's going to return and usher in the full blessing of his reign. And wickedness will be totally gone. And all the wickedness from the land will be cast out. And we will be welcomed into this promised land. Into this, heavenly, uh, this, this heaven and earth that are meeting. And there we will see the reign of Christ. And the kingship perfected. And the temple really extending over all of, all of that heavenly, heaven and earth because God's presence will be there in such fullness and in such perfection. And we won't look at the temple and say, oh man, this is kind of disappointing. We will be only satisfied in fullness as we anticipate, uh, as, we, as we see God and, and that's what we anticipate on that last day. And the fact that Chronicles traces all the way back to Adam through the return from exile reminds us that Jesus fulfills all of it, all the way back to the seed of the woman in Genesis 1. Or Genesis 3 in particular. But yes, Adam all the way back to Genesis 1. And then the identification of the post-exilic Jews. So those who would see their grandfather's names or their father's names there in the um, genealogy of First Chronicles 9. The identification of the post-exilic Jews with their ancestors in the genealogies is analogous to the Christian, us, identifying ourselves in the history of God's people in the person of Christ. So we can look back through all this and say, yeah, this is my story too. And it all hinges on that person of Christ to whom I am united. He is the one who takes me to the Father. He is the one who takes me home. He is the one who gives me hope. And so all this story of redemptive history is your story. And that's what I've learned from Chronicles.
Any concluding thoughts before we sing and pray? Next week, our lesson will... We're, we're not going to get to the Old Testament here for a few weeks. Next week, we're going to wrap up um, the ending of Mark. Because my last sermon in the book of Mark is next Sunday morning. And we're going to stop preaching through Mark at 16, verse 8, because you may see bracketed at the end that says the earliest manuscripts do not include verses 9 through the end. And so um, we're going to stop at verse 8 in the mornings, and we'll discuss some of those questions, those critical scholarship questions Sunday, next Sunday evening here about what happened to the ending of Mark. Uh, is it, does it end as it should? Um, did it lose a page? Some people think the page is lost. I'm not convinced that that's the case. Uh, and so there are actually three, I think, three different optional endings that have popped up over history. And one of them shows up in your Bible. Um, so anyway, we'll, we'll, that's, that's our discussion for next week. And then the next week will be the General Assembly update. And then we will return to Ezra Nehemiah after that. Yes. All right, well, let's pray, and then we'll sing one song. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for guiding the chronicler to tell this story in such a way to anticipate the true identity of your people in Jesus Christ. Would we do the same? Would we not find our identity in our denomination or our religious practice or in our nation or in any other thing below heaven would we find our identity in jesus alone and see that in his death we died in his burial we were buried in his resurrection we rise and in his ascension we too will be glorified we pray that we would live with that hope now and every day in jesus name amen